Welcome to New Books in Political Science. My name is Heath Brown, and today I have the real pleasure uh, to be talking to the author of Queer Migration Politics, Activist Rhetoric and Coalitional Possibilities, Karma Chavez. How are you doing today? I am doing really well. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's a real pleasure to have you on to talk about this interesting book. Before we get to the meat of the book, uh, maybe you could just tell us a little bit more about yourself. You're, you've got your hands in lots of different things. Uh, uh, tell us about it. Sure. Uh, well, I guess uh, work-wise, I am uh, currently, I guess I, I just uh, earned tenure, so I will soon be an associate professor uh, of communication arts uh, in Chicano. Well, congratulations. Thank you. Uh, always good news. Uh, right. So, of, uh, like I said, Com Arts and uh, Chicano and Latino Studies at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. Um, and I've been there for, this is my fourth year. Um, I also, I uh, do a lot of community work as well. I work um, on the board of the Wisconsin Network for Peace and Justice and do a lot of work on uh, immigrant rights there. Uh, and I work with a, uh, a queer, radical queer collective called Against Equality, uh, which uh, provides... Um, queer critiques of uh, the mainstream LGBT movement. So, um, and I do some radio on community radio, radio WORT in Madison as well. So um, try to be a good, uh, I don't know, public intellectual or something. But, yeah, uh, and it, it really does show up in the book, which is both deeply theoretical, but, but obviously has this, this, uh, these firsthand experiences uh, sometimes showing up uh, prominently, but also always in the background. Um, it makes it a very interesting read. Um, so let's get talking about, about the book itself. Sure. And, and, and because he's a personal favorite of mine, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what Congressman Jerry Nadler did on Valentine's Day in the year 2000 and what was its significance? Sure. So uh, one of the things that, that uh, had been going on through the early 90s uh, was uh, uh, some organizing specifically in cities to to try to get the LGBT and the immigrant rights movement together around the issue of um, binational same-sex couples. Uh, and so, of course, um, until very, very recently, within this year, uh, if you were, say, legally married in another country and you're, you're, one of you is a U.S. citizen and another was, say, a, a resident of Denmark, um, uh, or some country that provided marriage, you could not legally sponsor your same-sex partner for immigration benefit. Um, and so uh, this seemed like a likely alliance for LGBT and immigrant rights advocates. And so um, what culminated in on Valentine's Day in 2000 was uh, Representative Nadler, of course, um, proposing what was then called uh, was the PPIA, the Permanent Partners um, Immigration Act, which uh, was designed to provide this benefit to same-sex partners, um, regardless whether they were married or not. And, of course, it failed uh, every year. It continued to fail legislatively, but um, that was recently changed with the end of DOMA in uh, June of 2012. Right. And, and, and if, I, if I read that, that portion of the book right, uh, Nadler's approach would be one of inclusion. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about uh, where the common cause has been found between immigration advocates and LGBT advocates? What issues do they care about in, in common? Yeah, so, so you're right. So Nadler's approach is sort of what in the book I talk about as a more inclusionary approach, which uh, has been characterized at that intersection around the issues of um, LGBT asylum, so people getting asylum, political asylum in the U.S. based on their uh, sexual orientation or gender identity, um, the HIV ban on um, in immigration, which only ended in 2010, so 
uh, people who were HIV positive, with rare exception, could not legally um, come to the United States until 2010. And then, of course, this issue of binational same-sex couples, which became the main issue above all other issues uh, until, again, until DOMA. I think I said 2012 earlier, but uh, 2013, the end of DOMA. So those were the, the three main convergences with that one approach. Um, and then I, I say that there was a lot of other work going on that um, didn't focus on trying to get included in existing structures, um, which organized around prisons, um, around AIDS, but um, not so much um, necessarily legal, but actually community building. Um, and uh, then around immigration justice in a, in a broader sense that wasn't just about um, couples. Yeah, you talk a lot of, in the book about uh, manifestos and the way in which uh, various interests and activists uh, frame their arguments. Mm -hmm. um, and so I wonder if you could talk uh, a little bit about this, this one document, Family Unvalued, mm -hmm. uh, where it came from, uh, who wrote it, uh, what did it argue, and, and sort of where it sits in, in the, the various intersecting movements that are the subject of your book. Yeah, that's a great question. So Family Unvalued was a, a 2006 report that was put out by the Human Rights Watch and uh, the group Immigration Equality. Um, and it's actually, it's interesting, the authors of this, Scott Long, Jessica Stern, and um, Adam Francoeur. Um, Scott Long worked for Human Rights Watch at the time. He no longer does, but he's actually, um, he's a very, very radical um, queer, international queer human rights activist, um, which is probably why he no longer works for Human Rights Watch. But um, he, uh, so, so these three folks, this, um, they, this first report, it was about a 200-page report written in 2006, and it focused primarily on the issue of binational same-sex couples um, and the struggles that these folks uh, faced during, um, uh, during, you know, all the time leading up to um, 2013. And so it's really a heartfelt um, approach to their stories. They're very sad stories. I mean, it's not easy to live across two um, countries. Um, so Family and Value came out in 2006, which, of course, is the same year that all the big immigrant rights and justice marches happened. Um, so whether that was planned or sort of coincidental, it's hard to say. Um, but in the book, I write about that, that this was sort of this one very well-funded large report. But there were also a number of other smaller uh, manifestos that took a very different perspective that didn't center the needs of binational same-sex couples, but took a more broad uh, justice kind of approach that also came out in 2006, 2007. So it was a very exciting times for this intersection, I think, of um, queer and immigration politics in the U.S. Yeah, I, I do. I study nonprofits. And so I was so intrigued uh, by your description of this phrase, the gay nonprofit industrial complex. <laughs> so uh, what is this? Uh, uh, how does it function? And, and how, did, how does it relate to, to the intersections that you've been talking about thus far? Yeah, I mean, this is a, it's a complex thing, and it's, um, it, well, so I'll, I'll leave it there. It's a complex thing. So in 2007, um, Insight Women of Color Against Violence put out uh, a book called The Revolution Will Not Be Funded. Um, and in that book, they named what they called the nonprofit industrial complex. Uh, and in short, the, the, the pieces in that collection critique the way that all social justice organizing has been channeled into this nonprofit structure. So, um, you know, maybe in the early 70s or in the 60s, people would do activism after their day job. But now activism is people's day job. 
and so a lot of people have critiqued this as really narrowing the agenda. It gives a lot of power to, of course, uh, philanthropists and, and, and um, grant funders um, who kind of dictate uh, where the agenda can go. Well, in, in terms of LGBT rights, there's been uh, a lot of critique of this, focusing all efforts on marriage in particular, um, and sort of secondarily um, military and hate crime legislation. Um, but we've actually seen this in the in the um, the way that funding happens now. If you don't, if you're a gay organization, and you don't have something to deal with equality, um, it's very very hard to get funding. Yeah, I was talking with uh, just as an anecdote, I was talking with one of the archivists at the GLBT Historical Society in San Francisco, and she said they have a hard time getting money because everyone has oriented their funding toward marriage and equality. So this is kind of what, what the activists I write about critique is to say, well, what happens to a more radical agenda that might actually uh, meet the needs of people who maybe wouldn't benefit from something like marriage? Yeah, and I think I found that uh, section of the book in this, in this um, argument you make about other approaches just so interesting. You use the term differential visions as a way to, to structure some of your, your um, uh, the way you conceptualize this. And, and explaining that term, I wonder if you also then might explain really the title of your book, Queer Migration Politics. What, is, what does that phrase mean? And, and, and what does it do to, to help us understand these complex politics? Sure. Um, so, so the concept of the differential uh, begins with the Chicana feminist uh, Chela Sandoval, who proposed the concept of differential consciousness to describe how women of color feminists in the U.S. have always had to practice a kind of impure politics. And so much like the differential of a car, they sort of shift in and out of different political modes um, in order to, to accomplish what they need to accomplish. Um, Amy Carriol-Rowe, who's another Chicana feminist, she takes up this term um, the differential, and she applies it to the notion of belonging, and she, she says that differential belonging is sort of a political mode of relating where we sort of shift in and out of different relationalities, not just modes of consciousness, um, in order to um, build power lines between people who are very different. So what I try to do with the differential vision is I try to bring back the kind of consciousness or sort of orientation of of Sandoval with the um, focus on belonging in Carriero, um to show the way that activists put these two modes together to kind of shift in and out to create uh, of political modes to create these visions of how they imagine their politics. Um, and so I, I'm trying to I, I'm trying to I guess uh, use that term to describe the impurity uh, of their approach. Yeah. And- I, when I was reading the book, uh, which is which is deeply scholarly and 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 deeply embedded in in the literature, I was very curious what what the response is to, if not just the book. The book recently came out, but but to your to your writing by activists um, across the spectrum, across the, the the different parts of this movement, um, have you had uh, experiences where where activists are able to give you feedback on these these scholarly approaches? Um, do they resonate with, with people who are uh, advocating for all of the different uh, issues that you describe? Is, is, has that been a part of sort of the rollout of the book? Yeah, I mean, for the whole process, I definitely have been in conversation with um, different activists. In fact, many of the people in the book, it, uh, which, you know, sort of outside of scholarly convention, but have become uh, friends through the research and the writing. 
Um, perhaps most notably, the folks in the last chapter, um, Kat and Kathy, who are the two um, key players, um, neither of whom work for those organizations any longer, which is always interesting uh, mm-hmm. when a book comes out. But um, So both Kat and Kathy had a chance to um, read my dissertation, which is what Chapter 4 was based on. Um, and provide feedback on that. Um, Kat and I are still in very regular communication. Um, Yasmin Nair and I, uh, we write together outside of the Academy, um, and she's also a, a, a collaborator and friend. Um, I know Jose Herrera. I know uh, Raul uh, Ochoa. So many of the activists I know um, and have read the work. Uh, and I, I haven't sent all of them the book yet, so none of them have commented on the final draft, but there was mm-hmm. a lot of back and forth uh, as we went. Um, and, you know, some of it resonates and some of it is they just, I think some folks, uh, Kat in particular, will make fun of, you know, the theoretical parts of it. But uh, <laughs> right. uh, but there is some resonance, I think. Right, right. So uh, what, do we, what do you make of this overall? What, what do we take away from uh, some of your findings? Um, in, in sort of the, the light of the, the DOMA decisions, uh, the, the more recent DOMA decisions, um, where do these issues stand right now? Where, where are activists placing their energy now? Is, um, are, is this idea of, of differential visions becoming a greater part of the conversation um, as uh, marriage equality becomes uh, more of a, uh, a legal reality in a larger portion of the country? Um, what's happened to the gay nonprofit industrial complex as a result. So where are we now? Well, it's a good question. I mean, so I'll, I'll step back just a moment from that to say, you know, part of the big project of the book is to say um, we've been given very little options when it comes to LGBT politics. So on the one hand, we've been given a, a strong inclusionary agenda um, based primarily on marriage equality. And then on the other hand, we've been given from queer theorists a a focus on the realm of the aesthetic and on utopias and um, ideas that are very, very exciting, but that are often less connected to the material world of politics. And so what I was really trying to do is is find a way to offer an alternative to these alternatives um, and and to think about um, coalition as maybe being that alternative. And I think um, what the intersection of queer migration does um, is it shows that you a lot of the the tropes that get relied upon in LGBT politics, like citizenship, for example, you have to rethink that strategy when you're in connection with immigration because that's not something immigrants can rely upon. Um, and so, so that was part of the project of the book. Um, of course, you know, me as a identif- self-identified more radical activist, you know, we are in a place now where okay, we're, we kind of uh, have lost in a certain way. Um, as marriage equality becomes uh, a reality. Um, but on the other hand, I think um, there there is a movement to want more um, than what the inclusionary agenda provides, but not to completely isolate that agenda. And that's really what I was hoping to show, is that there is an alternative that doesn't require just completely dismissing a mainstream agenda if you're a radical activist. Um, but also doesn't require you to sort of turn to the complete realm of the imaginary. Um, but I will say in very material ways, I mean, the organization Queers for Economic Justice has just closed its doors. Um, and many radical organizations know are, are one step away from that. So, um, you know, what I have provided a glimpse of in the book may very well be that, um, a glimpse. But I do think those glimpses do exist uh, in small places throughout the country. 
Yeah, yeah. I, I enjoyed the book a lot. And, and, uh, Thank you. It's um, one that, that could be read in lots of different uh, both disciplines, but also uh, sub-disciplines across a number of different fields. What's what's next for you? Uh, without putting any pressure on your your net your schedule, is there a new book uh, in the in the the near future? What are you What are you working on next? Sure. Um, you know, I'm I'm I am very interested in this intersection uh, of um, queer politics and immigration politics and. So the next project that I'm working on right now is I want to write about AIDS activism on the issue of immigration. Um, so most writing about AIDS activism in the U.S. has completely centered on queer politics, uh, specifically gay men and their lesbian allies. Um, and yet uh, AIDS policies in the U.S. have always targeted immigrant communities. Um, and immigrants have always been among the most greatly affected. So what I'm um, planning to look at or what I'm looking at right now is um, the ways that immigrant communities uh, either coalesced with queer activists or sometimes worked um, separate from in order, but as AIDS activists um, around issues that were important to immigrant communities in the U.S. Yeah, well, it's a, it's a really interesting, broad uh, uh, research agenda and, and uh, the current book, Queer Migration Politics, Activist Rhetoric and Coalitional Possibilities, published uh, by Illinois University Press and available at their website. Karma, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you, Heath. I appreciate it.